Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest. He's a repeat guest. He's none other than Mr. George Ross. George is famous for having been executive vice president in the Trump organization. He did the very first deal with Donald when Donald was just 27 years of age. He taught negotiation at the law school at NYU for over 20 years, and he's the author of two best-selling books on real estate and negotiation. In today's conversation, we're talking about Donald's recent bid, his third bid for the presidency. Listen to my conversation with George. Welcome. Hi, Victor. How are you doing? I'm very well. Great. Well, good to have you here. Good to be here. But let's uh, let's dive right in. Good. So, George, let's start with something that is, it seems whenever Donald is concerned, there's no shortage of news, and today's another one of those days. Donald again announced his bid for the presidency, and I remember, if I think back to 2015, I remember uh, watching Donald come down the escalator in the Trump Tower uh, to make his announcement, and I remember at the time, back in 2015, we actually did a number of TV interviews together at about that time. And I remember you saying that you didn't think it really made sense for Donald to be running for president, that, you know, he didn't need it. Correct. What's your perspective? Uh, you know him perhaps better than most. Well, yeah, yeah. The answer is yes, that's true. I probably know him as well or better than somebody else because seeing him under all, all kinds of circumstances. Number one, he's got a, a inferiority complex as big as a house. That uh, was he was always operating under the shadow of his father, who was a very strong personality. And I think that Donald just has to figure out a way to surpass his father in the eyes of people. And I think that's what motivated him to to run for president. And what's what president motivates him now. And however, having tasted the power that goes with the presidency of the United States, uh, he likes it. Very much to be able to influence so many people is uh, the ultimate, uh, you know, power cocktail, and that's what he what he would like. He one thing I could always say about Donald is he is the ultimate patriot. He loves the United States and would do anything he thinks that would work that would make it better for the United States and the people who live in it. And he'll do a lot of things that other people might not do because he that's that's his motivation. He thinks he can make things better, and he's got the, uh, the the feeling of confidence that he can. Yeah, I can certainly see that, and and yet at the same time, I mean, he's he's already he has been president. He's not a yeah. quitter. I mean, I've seen him. That's for sure. No, and but understand one thing: he can't stand failure. Mm -hmm. That's a, a absolutely a, a difference in his background, or certainly his his personality is he cannot stand to lose. It's not there. He's not a good loser. He's not question. He's just not a loser. He can't stand it. So he's 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 got to uh, do what's necessary to to succeed. Interesting. You know, just speaking personally, having read your book, Trump style negotiation, and watched the way he conducts himself in in public. If I hadn't read that book, and if I didn't know you, I would probably be just as terrified as anyone on CNN about what seems like an erratic kind of behavior. And yet when I understand the playbook, I look at it and say, okay, that's like chapter seven, nicely played. Yes, yes, yes. Understand that the, uh, for all, all of the listeners that we have on here, 
the uh, number one asset of any good negotiator is unpredictability. If people can't predict what you're going to do, you are, you, that's the ultimate weapon because they don't know how to, how to deal with you. Sometimes you may say yes, sometimes you may say no, and they don't, they don't know how to deal with it. So they'll try 10 different things to try to get through to you. Now, that's wonderful. A good negotiator is like a chameleon. He adapts what he's saying and what he's doing to the background in which he's involved. He's or she is involved. That's the, that's the key. He just, the first time around, he destroyed a, a very capable slew of candidates. Oh, a yeah. Dozen. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the style. But if you, if, you, if you really analyze what he did at that time, is he, he got them not to talk about his ideas or what he's doing or what he would do, but he got them to relate to the fact that he was criticizing them, one for being too slow or being too sleepy or having big hands or whatever. So they were talking about personal characteristics, which had nothing to do with uh, the, the, the ability to, to govern. So you, you sidetracked them into something else that, that they were comfortable with, and, and they really couldn't compete with him because he's, he's great at that. If you're not talking about uh, his things that, that are extremely meaningful or complex, uh, he's great. One of the things I noticed in his announcements last night, he was reading from the teleprompter. Yes. And it it felt very sanitized. It was not... It was. It was, which was good. I think that that's... Whoever is, is uh, advising him or can get to him, I think that that's the way they, they impressed upon him that he can't, at this time, he can't be a free, uh, a free spirit. He's got to uh, show that he's presidential, and the easiest way to show presidential is to follow a script, a script. And that's what he did, which I admire, because that's not his, that's not his style. But your answer was, was very sanitized, I agree. Yeah, and it was it very much even sentences that felt like they could be impassioned sentences. It was the delivery were very flat. There was practically no passion in what he was saying. Correct. So uh, I think what he did was was get across the point that he had uh, that that maybe he's running, he's planning on running, he's going to run again, and that that may have an adverse effect on whoever is figures. Well, I'll take Trump on. Because he says he still has a big following, and you're saying, well, maybe that, that eliminates the potential candidates that are going to take over and reduces them that they don't want to uh, get involved taking him on because he's too powerful. But I agree with you. It was definitely a sanitized piece and not, not, not a Trump-style uh, speech. There was no emotion in it. Very little. Even in some of the key words where uh, it, it's not my campaign, it's your campaign. You know, that type right. of thing. Right, right. It was Agreed. Very sanitized. I know that when uh, when he ran the first time, you were doubtful he'd make it, and then you wrote him a letter afterwards congratulating him. What, what do you think? Yeah. What do you think this time around? Yeah, yeah. Well, I wrote him a letter. No, congrats. When I congratulated when when he got the nomination, ultimately, uh, I called him, and because he had so many, so much competition from people from major politicians in all uh, that, that had much more following than he did because he wasn't a politician. I mean, he guess he was on an apprentice on a, a quiz show or the apprentice call it what you like. And he was a good millionaire or a businessman. But when I spoke to him and told him how difficult it was for what he accomplished and thank God. And I told him, I said, let me give you one last bit of advice. 
learn how to say I made a mistake. If someone of authority or power or in a business situation will come up and say, I made a mistake, that's the end of the discussion. Now you now you have humanity. And I've used it many times. So somebody said, well, you offered me a million dollars. I said, yes, I made a mistake. It wasn't worth a million. I should have offered you 500000 That's the end of the discussion. Then they say, how did you get to the million? Or why are you changing your tone? Why are you going to use it? You don't have to explain. I made a mistake. Mm-hmm. And it's a wonderful, tact- wonderful technique uh, for anyone to utilize when they're in any kind of a negotiation. Simply, I made a mistake. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, well, uh, it'll be fascinating to watch as always. Uh, why don't we? Yeah. Why don't we pivot into talking about negotiation, which is near and dear to your heart? Definitely. Uh, and also, my pocketbook. The book was very absolutely. successful. <laughs> <laughs> it was interestingly enough. It was translated into seventeen languages. I don't know if you know that. I, I did. In fact, yeah. I, I remember having uh, when we were doing an event together, uh, buying books. And they were hard to find. I actually ended up yeah, ordering, they are like, hard to find. Yep. ordering 80 of them from the United Kingdom uh, oh, to yeah. get them over here. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But negotiation, let's, good. let's talk negotiation. What do we want to talk? Okay. This, um, this next one actually is from our business. And we own a number of projects related to storage, different forms of storage, boat and RV storage, equipment storage, self-storage. Yeah, yeah, fine. Um, historically, Great we ha- yeah. So historically, we have funded these projects on a project by project basis, and we're mm-hmm. increasingly of the mindset that we might consider moving to a fund model. Now, mm-hmm. of course, in a fund with fund one never having done a fund before in this asset class, uh, investors would ask the obvious question: What's your track record? So we're thinking that we would seed the fund with some of those existing projects that would represent yeah. the life cycle from completed projects to ones that are uh, about to enter construction. What, yeah. what are your thoughts? Is that, is I that, think it's great. Okay. I think it's great. I think it's a wonderful uh, uh, use of property. I think it's very much in demand. Mm-hmm. And the fact you have it, and there is all, uh, certainly in what you're doing, there is a tr- uh, an excellent economy of scale at this point. You're not going to have all of the paperwork that you need for all of these investments could be in one place. Right. One person could do one, one group can do it and, and do all the charges for the, that come from the individual users of the, uh, of the storage facility and also being able to do the in and out when you, if they pay when they're in and they pay when they're out or whatever, but that's fine. The fact that there's, there's very little diversification is, uh, is excellent. And that's with storage. People are storing things. You don't care what they're storing or how, what, how long it stays, long as they pay. But outside of uh, furnishing the four walls and maybe some fireproofing, which you did originally, at this, it's a great business and very, very much in demand. <coughs> when I say much in demand, when people move from one location to another, it's almost an absolute certainty that they're going to store something somewhere. That they want my furniture, I don't need. I'm going to give it to my children. I'm going to do whatever I do. It's it's easy to say I'll put it somewhere now for now, and the now somehow goes for weeks or months or whatever because they forget about it. It's not something they're immediately concerned about. So you're saying, okay, it's costing me three hundred dollars a month, but you don't you miss it. 
You don't care. It's you don't have the. What else am I going to do? I want to sell the furniture. The furniture's worth a lot, or whatever. 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 It's a great business to be in, and it's 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 uh, certainly not. I wouldn't say underrated, but you see a lot of companies getting into that business. You see these self storage places all uh, everywhere, almost. What considerations would you have? when setting up a fund um, and I'm focusing on the fund model versus doing it on a project by project basis. The fund is great because again, you have, you have, uh, you can buy things cheap. If you got you now, you went, you took all your buildings that were all of these buildings and you said, I'm going to put it under one insurance company. Wow. Of course. Yeah. That's great. And they said, or I'm going to have whatever it is. I'm going to have uh, 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 something where you can cross the board that uh, uh, I can buy protection for each one. So I may be able to buy contracts where you, you repair the roof or you repair the, uh, buy it across across t- over 10 projects. Wonderful. You can do that. Absolutely. Because the more you spread it out, the better they, they, they like it. You don't have to worry about losing, having a problem in one project. At that point, you're saying, well, over 10 projects, what's the probability of me having a loss that's going to be major? So it's, it's wonderful. Insurance companies have been doing it for years. They love to have portfolios. And it's you love to be able to sell them a portfolio. Well, absolutely. I love my conversations with George. I'm so blessed to have developed this relationship over the last decade where we speak frequently. George is an extraordinary advisor. He's been so helpful to me over the past decade, and I cherish the time we have together. I'm 94 years of age, one of the wisest men I know. If you're managing your own real estate development business or real estate investing business, you want to make sure that you get a George. It doesn't have to be the George, but it can be a George as an advisor in your business. As you think about that, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.